Welcome to Investing Compass. Before we begin, a short disclaimer that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situations, or needs. So big week, or big mm-hmm. two weeks, right? We got, we're out of lockdown. We're out of lockdown, which is exciting. What did you de- decide to do with all this freedom? Well, you know what I did, number one. <laughs> everyone else doesn't, so. Uh, um, yeah, no, I uh, I did what everyone else did. I went out to the pub, mm-hmm. um, potentially a little aggressively on Thursday. <laughs> uh, Do you want to tell people about that? Yeah, well, Julia and I went out for a drink. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you know, it's 3.45 in the morning and we're sitting <laughs> on a bench in Surrey Hills drinking beers. But uh, but yeah, you know, just easing into it, right? Yeah, I mean, I I sent you a message and I didn't get a response until three forty five when you got home. <laughs> you were like up responding to it and saying goodnight. So. Yeah, well, no, it's important to be responsive. Yeah. Um, we went out last night for a drink at the Dumpling Bar. Yes, which I was very excited about. I haven't been out that much because as lockdown happened, I got a dog. So. It's a puppy, so I can't really leave it alone because it has separation anxiety. Yeah. So Shani got. You want to talk about the dog? You want to talk about the dog's name? Y- yes. The dog's name is Priscilla. And is this dog a male dog or a female dog? It's a male dog. Yes. But I've always wanted a Pomeranian named Priscilla, and they're hard to get. And I didn't have much choice. I've had to get a male. So yeah, I was making references before this to a boy named Sue, but of course, Johnny did not. It just went over my head. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, yeah. learn about <laughs> learn about Johnny Cash. But we are going to talk today about portfolio construction. Mm-hmm. So this is our second episode on portfolio construction. So our first one was the first one we did this year, and it was our most popular episode ever. So people should go back and listen to that. But today's episode came from a question we got from Anna. Uh, question or a suggestion for an episode. And I really liked it. And I think she sent it maybe Tuesday this week. And it's Thursday yeah, we, now. You pumped this episode and out. We, yeah, we yeah. turned this around because <laughs> I thought, uh, yeah, I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. So you pushed back our schedule. I did. For this episode. I did. I did. That's pretty good service. Okay. So Anna raised a couple good questions and this this got me thinking. So in our first episode on portfolio construction, we walked through the process of defining a goal calculating your required rate of return, choosing an asset allocation target, and then selecting investments. But Anna, I think, rightly pointed out that during the asset allocation piece, we talked about the different models we provide to our premium subscribers at Morningstar, but we didn't really talk about the theory behind it. And so Anna said this made it a little difficult for her when she was considering her super fund and then considering an investment property that she has. So today we're going to go through the exact same framework because one of the most important things in investing is to be structured and deliberate about how we go about things. We are structured and deliberate because consistency and sticking to a plan is the way to be successful with investing. It's a way to prevent you from following advice you receive on a forum from a complete stranger who doesn't know you and what you want to accomplish. Yeah. So like that night I went out with Julia, if I would have been consistent with we're going out for a drink, (laughs) then I would have had a better Friday. But uh, but yeah, we need to start in the beginning again, because that's where you're supposed to start, right? The beginning. And that is what you want to accomplish. And that, of course, is your goal. So we'll go quickly through these steps. Once again, you can go back and listen to that first episode if you want. So remember that when you're setting a goal, you need to be very specific. And you need to be specific because you are going to use these inputs to calculate a required rate of return. So you need to know what you have now. You need to know how much you need to accomplish your goal. 
when you want to accomplish your goal and how much you're going to save. And that, of course, allows you to calculate a required rate of return. And your required rate of return is what gets you from where you are to where you want to get, which is to accomplish your goal. And this required rate of return is going to tell you two things. The first is that you can accomplish your goal. And the second is asset allocation. And that is what we're going to look at during today's episode. So why don't you start us off? Okay. So we've said often on here, right, that investing is about a trade-off between risk and return. So we take on risk and we get rewarded by returns. And that's how we should evaluate different types of investments. So the risk we are taking and the way the investment industry talks about risk is volatility or how much an investment bounces around. So the more volatile an investment, the more return we should expect to receive. So volatility is just the price we pay for returns. So let's use an example. So we can go back to you know, your mate Laura's favorite ETF, the Vanguard Australian Shares <laughs> ETF. And that has a ticker symbol VAS. So VAS tracks the ASX 300 or the 300 largest companies in Australia. And over the last 10 years, it has returned 10.66% a year. So that is the return that you've gotten. But we also need to look at the risk or the volatility that it took to get that return. And there's all sorts of different measures we could look at, but we're going to look at two. We're going to start with standard deviation, and then we're going to look at maximum drawdown. So Shani, why don't you take us through standard deviation? Sure. So standard deviation shows the consistency of an investment's return over time and how far each return over each period varies from the average return. So the higher the standard deviation, the more a return will vary from the average mean or the more volatility you can expect. The standard deviation of VAS is 13.35, and that variance from the average return is pretty high. So Mark, what other measures can we look at? Yeah, the other thing we can look at that I think is good to look at in conjunction with standard deviation is we can look at drawdown. So the maximum drawdown is the peak to trough decline during a specific period. So in this case, that period is 10 years because we're looking at 10 years for this ETF. So this represents the largest percentage drawdown or drop in value that's occurred. So for Vanguard Australian shares, the maximum drawdown over the last 10 years is 2695 over a drawdown period of two months. So that means over a two-month period between the 1st of February 2020 and the 31st of March 2020, VAS dropped 26.95%. And that, of course, was that COVID market drop. So, Mark, this all seems very important. So um, these are statistical risk measures. So how should we look at this as investors? Yeah, well, most investors shouldn't care. So they just shouldn't care at all about this. And there are certainly times during your investment journey that volatility is really important. But if we are investing for the long term and we have a long time before our goal, we really need to focus on the returns that we need to achieve our goals. But there is one reason why we should care, and it's if volatility makes us do something stupid. So let's say we bought VAS 10 years ago and things were going pretty well, but then COVID happened and we sold. And we all know what happened with the recovery, but many people lose their nerve. So that is why you need to focus on the long-term return needed to achieve your goal. And the higher the return we need and the longer the timeline we have until our goal, the more risk we should take by focusing on growth assets rather than defensive assets like fixed interest and cash. Yeah, that's right, Chani. And the risk we should worry about is losing money that we can't make back. And that's, of course, why we create a diversified portfolio. Exactly. We don't want to put all our money into one share and want to diversify to protect ourselves against all the unsystemic risks which means risks that are associated with one specific company, country, or asset class. 
Okay, so with that as a basis, we need to start looking at real world portfolios because that's what the question was, right? So in the real world, things are not as clean as our suggested asset allocation. Uh, and those will really just serve as a guide. So in the real world, we might be saving for retirement in our super. We might have investments outside of our super. We might own our own home. We might have an investment property. And we might be eligible for an age pension. So let's start by dividing our assets up into investments and non-investments. A lot of people focus on their net worth. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But we need to align assets to goals. So let's walk through some of them. Why don't we start a little bit of a controversy, Shani, and we can talk about- <laughs> That's always why you like to stop, Mark. Exactly, exactly. We can talk about housing in terms of the primary residence or the place you live. And how do we incorporate our home equity in our primary residence into our asset allocation and our portfolio construction? Well, the point of a portfolio is to support you in paying for your goal. Let's use retirement as an example. So you save and invest for years and build up some assets, and then you need to convert those assets into cash that supports your lifestyle. So how should we think about your primary residence that you own in this context? Okay. Well, basically, here are the options you have for the house that you live in. You could sell it, right? And you raise cash from that sale. But of course, then you need a place to live. Um, so you could sell it and potentially move someplace cheaper. So either a cheaper area or into a cheaper house, or of course you could rent in retirement. And maybe that's your retirement plan. And the risk you're subject to there is differences in the price returns between different areas or between different houses if you're downsizing or moving to a cheaper area. And it's very, very difficult to model that out over the long term to determine the differences in prices between Melbourne and Hobart, for example, if that's your plan, right, to move to Tassie. So same thing with downsizing. Now, the other option, of course, is you can take money out of your house with a loan, and you can use that loan to pay for retirement. But if you have a while until retirement, this is an extremely risky proposition because you have no idea what interest rates are going to be at retirement, and that's going to have a big impact on the amount of the loan you can take out. Because remember, if you are going to take a loan out, you need to invest that money, and you need to earn a return that's higher than the interest rate you're paying, or the whole thing is pointless. Other thing you can do, of course, you could get a reverse mortgage where you're basically just slowly giving back your equity and your home to the bank. And once again, I'm not sure I would count this as a plan if you have a very long time to go before retirement. So with the reverse mortgage, interest rates still matter a lot because they use that to actually compound the debt you owe the bank over time. Mark, you've been here for a little while now, and I probably don't have to tell you that you're going to be chased out of the country for telling people that owning your own home isn't the secret to a safe retirement. Yeah, well, actually, Shawnee, I'm a citizen, so <laughs> you, can, uh, you can't kick me out. You guys are stuck with me. Um, but one way that housing can be really beneficial for you is if you pay off your house before you retire. So let's run through an example of how this can benefit you in retirement. So if your plan is to pay off your home, that can be worth a lot to you. So, Shani, why don't you walk us through the scenario? Sure. So let's say you need $75,000 a year to support yourself in retirement. That's what you estimate when you're going through the goal-setting process. To calculate the total that you need in your portfolio, you need a withdrawal rate. So let's use 4% for this exercise, which means that you divide the amount you need per year by 4%, which in this case equals $1.875 million. And just a reminder to include inflation in these calculations. Now, the way you've estimated this amount is by taking a replacement rate of your current salary, which we covered a couple of episodes ago. That replacement rate is used by looking at your current salary and what you need for living expenses after your savings and taxes. 
And this is going to be very unique to your personal circumstances, but I've seen studies that indicate that the average Aussie spends around 25% of their income on their mortgage in a dual income household. Okay, so that's great. So now we basically have all we need to look at the impact we would get if we pay off our mortgage. So take us through it, Shani. Okay, so we're going to be a bit conservative here. We'll say that it is 25% of your after-tax and after 10% super contribution. That basically means we're taking 25% of that 75K, which represents the replacement rate for your salary. So go listen to our super episode for more details, but that means that we can reduce that 75K to 56K if we're removing the 19K cost of housing if you pay off your mortgage. Now, if we just divide 56K by 4%, we get $1.4 million. And that means that paying off your mortgage has reduced what you need in retirement by $475,000. Okay. And this is obviously very dependent on your own situation, but you can see that paying off your mortgage is pretty powerful because it reduces your living expenses. And that is the power of owning your own home. So do you think I get a reprieve from this sort of pitch or carrying (laughs) housing is the only way to be financially secure crowd? Yeah, probably not, especially after you've call them pitchfork carrying, but you know, I think you're still in trouble. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, perhaps I'll go into hiding on Sunday when this episode comes out. Uh-huh. I'll go hide at the pub and nobody yeah. nobody will ever no find No one's going to pick that, mate. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. So personally, I wouldn't include my primary residence in my retirement plan if I had a ways to go before retirement, unless I was planning on working towards paying off my mortgage. So this doesn't mean that owning your own home isn't beneficial. But just like how I wouldn't count my emergency fund against a goal, I wouldn't count a primary residence. It's a place to live and not a way to retire unless you have very specific plans to turn it into cash. So I'm probably going to catch a lot of flack, right, Shani? But mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm a pretty conservative guy when it comes to investing and planning. So that's just what I would do. All right. So let's move on to how you think about an investment property. This is a little bit different than your primary residence because you have more options. An investment property can be treated like any other asset. Okay, so let's evaluate it like any other asset, right? So let's look at the return potential and the risk of losing money that we can't make back. So every situation is, of course, different. We're going to make a couple assumptions here based on local market conditions. So the first assumption is that you have borrowed money to purchase your investment property. And the second assumption is that you are cash flow negative on the property. Let's explain what being cash flow negative means. That means that the money you pay for your mortgage, your strata, general upkeep, and any other expenses associated with the property is more than you are getting in rent. And I know you hate that, Mark. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I personally do. We went back to the, you know, we had the cash flow versus balance sheet statement. It uh, keeps going episode. back to that. I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I own a couple of investment properties in the US and they're all very cash flow positive. And it is a very different market. So prices aren't as high there. Um, but uh, but yeah, I want my investments to support my day-to-day life and generate passive income. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move on. So let's look at an investment property using those two assumptions. So if your investment property is cash flow negative or break even, and you've taken out a mortgage to pay for it, you're basically making a levered bet on house price appreciation. So let's explain this a bit. Leverage is when you borrow money to make an investment. Leverage will amplify your returns on the upside and increase your risk on the downside. Let's explain how this works. So let's say I put down 20K on a 100K house. That's a pretty typical arrangement. If housing prices increase by 1%, do I get a 1% return? I don't because of leverage involved. That 1% is a 1K increase, but my investment was only 20K, so I actually earned a 5% return. The exact same thing would happen if I borrowed money and invested the money in the stock market. 
Yeah. And this, and this is what always gets me, right? Like people always tell me how great real estate is as an investment. And I just always want to point out that it's great because you borrowed a ton of money to invest in it. So that works out very well when the housing market is going up. But people need to understand that it also exposes you to a lot of downside risk because if housing prices go down 1%, you'll also amplify your losses. But Mark, housing prices never go down. Yeah. You know, as an American, <laughs> as an American that lived through the GFC, it's hard to think of where I heard that before. But uh, yeah, you know, housing prices going down in the US almost brought down the whole global financial system. But what are you going to do? The thing is that housing prices have gone down in Australia and they've gone down in the near past. So between 2001 and 2005, they went down. 2008 and 2009, they went down. 2010 and 2011, they went down. And recently, and you should pay attention to this, they went down because of government actions to reduce house price growth using lending curbs in 2014 and 15 and 17 and 18. But anyway, it's not a whole episode on housing. <laughs> so let's go back to thinking about constructing a portfolio and how an investment property fits in. So how should we think about this asset, Shani? Well, let's look at returns to see where housing falls as a growth asset or a defensive asset. Looking at RBA data, we see that over the past 120 years, houses in capital cities in Australia have appreciated 6.1% a year. During that period, we saw inflation of 3.6% a year. That means in real terms or after inflation, we see returns of about 2.5% per year. Now, it is important to note that since 1980, those real returns have accelerated and averaged 3.4% above inflation. But either way, that isn't a great return, and an argument could be made that housing should be considered a defensive asset with inflation protection, but that's without taking leverage into account. If you put down 20% of a house and all of a sudden you're amplifying your returns by five times, just like the example we used earlier. One other thing to note is that these are returns in capital cities. Returns have always been lower over the long term elsewhere and vary between different capital cities. Always keep that in mind. So when we take 2.5% a year and we multiply that by five to account for the mortgage, we are definitely in growth territory. So when thinking about your investment property, we can consider them growth assets in your portfolio. Once again, I'll point out that in a traditional sense, housing prices can be very volatile because of the leverage that's built in. I don't think volatility is something that people should worry about if they have long time horizons, but it's important to know that. The other thing to point out about an investment property is that the place in your portfolio, that its place in your portfolio can change over time as you pay down your mortgage. So every time you pay your mortgage, a portion of that goes to principal. So you're effectively deleveraging your investment. This is the forced savings part of owning a home, but know that as you pay off more and more of your mortgage, you are slowly moving your investment property from a growth to a defensive asset. So I would argue if you were fully paid off, so if you fully paid off your investment property, and we look back 120 years with a real return of 2.5%, we are approaching bond territory when we think about expected returns going forward. So in thinking about your portfolio, think about your own personal circumstances, including how much you paid off of the house. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a ShareSide investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSide's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. 
Sign up for a free trial today. If anyone has any arguments about housing and want to talk to Mark about it, he'll be at the Clock Hotel on Sunday. So you can go and meet him there. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. Um, Unfortunately, we do need to continue on housing a bit when thinking about your portfolio and portfolio construction. So we place in the growth and defensive category, but we also need to think about its place among the other asset classes. So why don't you take us through that, Shani? Yeah, sure. So as a reminder of our aggressive portfolio has a suggested asset allocation of 90% growth assets and 10% defensive assets. But within that 90% in the growth category, we have 30% in Aussie equities, 45% in global equity, 4% in Aussie listed property, 6% in global listed property, and 5% in infrastructure. Now, when we think about housing in that context, we need to think about the characteristics that impact prices. Housing is very local. Australian housing prices will be influenced by the local economy and policy decisions made by the government. They will also influence other parts of the economy. The wealth effect from housing has undoubtedly lifted retail spending and any drop in pricing would probably hit retail spending and potentially the banks if loans start going bad. It is also unlikely that a slowdown in Australian housing prices would have any impact on the global financial system or global markets. So when we think about housing in a portfolio context, we should look at it within that Aussie equity and Aussie listed property context. And this isn't perfect, but we want to think about the risk factors that we face as long-term investors. And those are the risk factors that could cause us to lose money that we can't make back. So if you have an investment property and are really overweight Aussie shares, which are more domestically focused than global companies, and you have a job in Australia, you are very exposed to local economic conditions. So putting it in that context, I would focus more of your non-investment property portion of your portfolio globally or with Aussie companies that have less exposure to the local economy. And so you've told people now that they should reconsider their allocation to Aussie shares. So should we tell people where you're going to be on Sunday again? I I think you already (laughs) told people. I think you already told people. So we don't want people showing up there, right? (laughs) But I figure like if the mob shows up, Mm -hmm. they'll all have to check in using the QR codes and I can run out the back door. (laughs) Do you think mobs are quite disciplined? Um, Yeah, no, it's important. Yeah, okay. You know, COVID safe, right? (laughs) So investment properties are just one investment that isn't in our asset allocation models. Crypto is certainly becoming a portion of many people's portfolios. There is gold and other commodities, and there is peer-to-peer lending. And there are some investments like private equity that can be accessed through some industry super funds. So how should we consider these assets? Okay, so crypto is an interesting one because we don't have that much history. And I think clearly it should go into the growth portion of your portfolio, but it does have very little correlation with other assets. But again, that could be related to the relatively short history. So crypto obviously has a lot of volatility. So in fact, we cover 35,000 different indexes at Morningstar, and Bitcoin has one of the highest volatilities of any of those indexes. And we talked about standard deviation earlier, and Bitcoin has a standard deviation that is 15 times higher than equities. So that's really sky high. So if you're allocating part of your portfolio to Bitcoin, you need to be a true believer, which means that you need to have a thesis that will allow you to hold on through all that volatility. I would also say that if you want to hold Bitcoin, I would just treat it a bit like a speculative side bet that doesn't impact your overall asset allocation too much. Just remember that even a small allocation will dramatically increase the overall volatility of your portfolio. I would also say that I think it is a higher risk of going to zero than other types of investments. But once again, maybe you'll be rewarded for that risk. Oh, we'll see. We will.
Yeah. So that naturally leads us into gold. And gold is an interesting investment and has attracted a pretty small but passionate group of supporters. And one interesting study I read about gold was looking at what Roman soldiers were paid 2,000 years ago in gold and comparing it to what the US Army soldiers make now in gold terms. Basically, the conclusion was that gold has not appreciated at all in price in real terms or after inflation in 2,000 years. But it has, of course, retained its value, which we need to admit is not a bad thing, since if we consider gold currency, it has done a lot better than any other currency. Okay, so this is good because you came up with a weird history story Story. this time (laughs) instead of me. So it's a nice break. Yeah, exactly. Just giving you a break since you're about to go into hiding. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Gold has performed a bit better more recently as it has started to be driven more by investors. But I would still consider it as a defensive asset in your portfolio, meaning that if you think you need 90% of your portfolio in growth assets, don't reduce that amount for an allocation to gold. Yeah, the thing that's uh, the thing that's always interesting about gold is that a lot of people treat it like it's insurance, right? Against like if there's a zombie apocalypse, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so like even if everything else goes down and the rest of your wealth evaporates, you still have like enough gold to bribe the zombie king, right? To let you go. <laughs> and I just I think it's interesting because that notion of keeping like let's say two percent of your portfolio in gold to guard against this catastrophe. Like it's great if you have a hundred million dollars, right? And you could still live a decent life off your gold stockpile, but it makes less sense if you have two hundred thousand dollar portfolio. So you're saying like the going bribery rate in an apocalypse is less than four thousand dollars in gold? Well, yeah, because I think yeah. zombies are also <laughs> worried about inflation, Sonica, right? Yeah, well, I think the lesson is that gold is probably not going to be the engine that drives your portfolio and helps you accomplish your goals, but can offer some downside protection and a bit of diversification. Yeah, I mean, I guess, right? But I would probably suggest that most people probably shouldn't bother. But anyway, that's uh, that's a good place to talk about another part of constructing portfolios that you'll hear a lot about. And that is the notion that you want to put assets into a portfolio that has low correlation. So low correlations between those assets. So in other words, assets go in different directions. So a perfect correlation means that two assets will move up and down in lockstep. Well, assets that have a perfect inverse correlation will move in opposite directions. So the notion here is that you build a portfolio with assets with low correlations and that will lower volatility in your overall portfolio. And I can guess what you're going to say about this, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I'm predictable, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so building a portfolio like this is appropriate if your goal is to lower volatility. And there are times when this is really valuable for investors who need to lower volatility as they transition to a goal like retirement and start to draw down their portfolio in retirement. And that is critical, and it shouldn't be dismissed. But remember, That of the traditional asset classes, shares have the highest expected return and the highest volatility. So if you have 20 years to go until retirement and you're trying to lower the volatility of your portfolio by picking uncorrelated assets, you need to go into that with your eyes wide open and know that you are also lowering your expected returns. And this, once again, is why we want to focus on the required rate of return of accomplishing your goal. And to reiterate what we said earlier, volatility should not be the risk you're concerned about as an investor with a long time horizon. Your risk is not achieving your goal, which is why you are focused on the return needed to achieve that goal. Limiting volatility is useful only in terms of behavioral safeguards against selling and buying at the wrong time. But by looking at your required rate of return and focusing on the long term, you can also provide this safeguard. And that doesn't mean that we don't diversify, and that doesn't mean that we just chase high returns. You diversify not to limit volatility by looking at uncorrelated assets. You diversify because you don't want to lose money that you can't make back. If a company you invest in goes bankrupt or a specific geographic area you're invested in 
goes through a Japanese-style multi-decade slump, when the Nikkei, Nikkei was still down 50% off of its high 25 years after the market peaked. All right, so let's move on to our next example of an investment and how it fits into your portfolio. Hopefully, you should be sensing a pattern here. We're looking at different investments that may go into your portfolio and trying to evaluate them against the risk and return trade-offs that we all need to make as investors. So let's start with peer-to-peer lending as a concept. There are platforms that facilitate direct loans to other people. There are a lot of them in Australia, including Society One, Money Place, and Plenty. We aren't going to spend too much time on the details behind any of these platforms, but you are offering unsecured loans to individuals. Unsecured means there is no asset that has been pledged as collateral like your house would be with a mortgage. Yeah, so we're talking about loans here. So we need to immediately think about fixed interest, which is, of course, a defensive asset. But let's think more about the characteristics of these specific loans. So I went on CanStar and it showed that these loans, if I want to get one, have interest rates between 6% if you have very good credit and close to 18% if you have bad credit. And that's obviously very different from the rates we're seeing from banks on secured loans and more closely resembles credit cards at the extreme. So as a lender and not the lendee, we're getting a lot higher rates of return than we would get off investment grade corporate bonds or government bonds. But there is a trade-off and to get these returns, we are taking on more risk. And the risk we're taking on is credit risk, which means that the person you're lending money to won't pay you back. And since it's unsecured, it's not like you can go seize some asset and sell it off to try to get your money back. So this more closely resembles a high-yield bond or junk bond, which is just a loan to a company that has terrible credit. And given the risk and return characteristics, this more closely resembles a growth asset. And if you're making loans to Australians, then we need to look at the exposure you have to the local economy. When economic problems happen, it's often the most vulnerable in our society that get hit the hardest, and the most vulnerable are the people taking out 17% unsecured loans. So if there's an economic downturn, you can expect losses. The same theory as with housing, and I would consider this part of your Aussie equity exposure in your portfolio. Yeah, and there are countless different investments you can use as part of your portfolio, but think about the purpose they serve and where they fit into your overall asset mix. So one last example we want to use is the aged pension. So people that are in retirement or approaching retirement will have portfolios that look very different to a portfolio with 30 years to go until reaching your goal. But if you're qualified for the aged pension or will soon qualify for it, it's important to take that into account when looking at your portfolio because the age pension will likely make up a big part of your retirement. So, Shani, what should we look for here? All right. So the age pension is a defined benefit plan, which means that you will get a certain benefit for the rest of your life. This is also the same way you would like to think about an annuity because that is basically the same thing. So when we're thinking about a guaranteed cash flow that may be adjusted for inflation that gets paid to you for the rest of your life, what does that sound like, Mark? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like an inflation-protected bond, Shani. Mm -hmm. And the only difference, of course, is that you don't get a lump sum back at the end because it never matures. Yeah, it does. So there are a range of opinions here, but an annuity or age pension should have an influence on your overall asset allocation. And for most people, it should allow you to get more aggressive with your portfolio than you normally would without this fixed and guaranteed payment. And once again, there are some nuances here. Um, You know, you've got this set of cash flows into the future. And you could potentially value them by discounting them back to the present like you would a discounted cash flow model. We're looking at the value in terms of withdrawal percentage from your portfolio. So if we do a back of an envelope way to think about this, we can think about a withdrawal rate. So a withdrawal rate is a number that you are trying to pick that enables your portfolio to not run out of money before you die. 
So for instance, a four per, the 4% rule was supposed to allow your portfolio to last 30 years in any type of market conditions when looking at historic returns. Well, the cash flow from an annuity or age pension can be thought of the same way because it won't run out before you die. So from a portfolio perspective, if you were using a 4% withdrawal rate, you can equate how big of a portfolio you would need to replicate this cash flow. So the maximum age pension right now for a single person in Australia is $22,575 a year. So using this logic of trying to figure the portfolio size needed to support that same payment at a 4% withdrawal rate means we simply need to divide 22575 by 4%, and that gives you $564,000. Okay, and that's substantial, right? And that is similar to a fixed income allocation in a portfolio to a AAA-rated government bond. But in this case, one that pays you 4% a year, which is much higher than current interest rates. So as I said earlier, this guaranteed payment may allow you to get a little more aggressive in your portfolio in terms of the allocation you have to growth assets. So just something to think about. All right, let's switch gears here a little bit. The other question that many people have around portfolio construction is what to do when you have a number of accounts. For instance, many people might have an industry super fund that has an asset allocation that can vary within a defined mandate. And then also might have some accounts outside of super that are invested with brokers. And this is where it's really important to take a holistic view of all your assets. So the first task to outline all the different holdings you have across different accounts so you can see what your asset allocation actually is. Yeah, and this is where a tool like ShareSite, which you get from Premium, is really useful. So you can combine it with our portfolio x-ray, which will look through any ETFs, funds, and licks that you hold to show the underlying allocation to asset classes, sectors, countries and individual securities. But if you don't use a tool like that, you can also just do this in a spreadsheet. And you did this for 20 years, Mark. Your I, best I friend. Yeah, my best friend in the, the spreadsheet. spreadsheet. <laughs> yep. That's, I was just hanging out with my best friend for 20 years. Um, so once you've consolidated everything, you can align each investment you have into one of the categories we've discussed. So domestic equity, global equity, domestic listed property, global listed property, infrastructure, domestic fixed income, global fixed income, and cash. And for assets that don't fall directly into these categories, I would group them where you think they most appropriately fit from a risk and return perspective. And this is an opportunity to go back and look at long-term returns of the different assets in your portfolio to give you a sense on how you are positioned against your required rate of return. And when I say long-term returns, I'm talking about 30 years, not the last couple of years where returns have been historically high. Okay, so why don't we ballpark some of these returns for people? So if we look back across roughly the last 100 years, we see that Aussie shares have delivered around a 10% annual return when we include dividends, and this is according to the RBA. Now, this is a nominal return. When we take inflation into account over the same period, it reduces it by around 4%. So let's just say this gives us a real return of 6%. And by the way, for those keeping score at home, that is much higher than the return on housing. But once again, housing returns are amplified by leverage. You really just can't leave this alone, mate. I know. I know. It's not great. Um, some bureaucrat somewhere in Canberra is like canceling my citizenship <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, global markets are pretty similar. So the US long-term returns is slightly higher. Then if we go over and we look at bonds, since 1926, we get a return in the range of 5.5% a year. But remember, this is nominal. So when we take inflation into account and remove roughly 4% for that, they drop down to around 1.5% a year in real terms. So at a high level, this is the way you can look at, think about long-term returns for the growth and defensive parts of your portfolio. 
But please note that there is nothing that says the future will look like the past. And given current interest rate levels and valuation levels, it's safe to say it will be challenging to replicate those returns in the new future. Build in a bit of a buffer to be conservative, but that's how your required rate of return informs your asset allocation. If you require a nominal rate of return of 8% a year, and you are invested 90% in defensive assets that have historically returned 5.5% a year, it's safe to say that you're not going to hit your return goal, especially in this interest rate environment. And while you're thinking about building your portfolio, another thing to think about is where each asset should be located. So asset location is probably an underappreciated part of portfolio construction. And what that means, and what we mean about asset location, is to think about the different accounts you may have and the tax treatments of those accounts. The obvious example is a super account and non-super brokerage account. As we discussed in our last couple episodes on super, there are tremendous tax advantages to super. Capital gains and your dividends are generally taxed at 15% instead of your marginal tax rate. So, Shani, what are the implications of these differences between taxes? Well, pretty simple. You want as many of your capital gains and dividends or other forms of income to occur within your super account. So let's take a little quiz, Mark, and we'll see how you do. Okay, I fail most quizzes, just so you know. <laughs> right, okay. So if you have two different shares that you plan to hold for the long term, and one pays a 5% dividend and one pays a 1% dividend, where do you hold them? Well, Shani, I would hold the higher yielding share in my super account, since those large dividend payments will get taxed at a lower rate than if they occurred outside a super. All right, one for one, mate. Very good. Let's say that you are saving for retirement inside and outside of super and you want to allocate 10% of your portfolio to defensive assets such as cash and fixed interest. Where does that go? Yeah. So in this case, I would hold it outside of super because my expected returns are lower than equities at this point. And you know, I'm really getting no interest on, on either of these, right? So better to pay my full taxes on investments with lower expected returns. And we could keep playing this game. Thinking about tax consequences is an important consideration when thinking about putting together a portfolio. All right, so let's let's close this episode out because we are actually late for an interview. We are. <laughs> um, so we covered a lot of ground today. So let's go through a couple key points. So we once again talked about, you know, the key when putting together a portfolio is to start with your goals and spend some time defining those goals in detail so you can calculate a required rate of return that will help you get from where you are now to where you want to be. We then focused on asset allocation and how it needs to be aligned with the required rate of return that you need. More risk means a higher expected return, and we need to be aware of that as investors. And we talked multiple times about the real risks you should worry about as a long-term investor. That is a risk of not achieving your goals, which we address by making sure our asset allocation is aligned with our required rate of return. And the risk that you are going to lose money, we address through diversification. All right. And then... Mark went on a rant about housing. It was not a rant, Shari. <laughs> okay, let me rephrase. Mark talked about some considerations about housing and the use of leverage and how over time your housing investment could more closely resemble a defensive asset instead of a growth asset. We talked about how to evaluate different investments based on their risk and return characteristics and then finished with a discussion about asset placement. And one final thing, we heard a lot today about how some of the things that we always hear about investing may not apply to most people's portfolios and approach that they take. We talked about how risk isn't volatility and how the idea of constructing a portfolio with uncorrelated assets to lower volatility may not be the approach that people want to take. So maybe a final point is why do we hear these things all the time? Yeah, I mean, I think we just hear these things because investing professionally is different than investing on your own. So professional investors don't know generally much about the people whose money they're investing, right? Fund manager doesn't know who's invested in that fund. 
So we hear a lot of things. We hear a lot of terms around volatility. We hear about the efficient frontier, all sorts of different things. But just remember, as investors, we should just, individual investors, we should just focus on our goal and think about the risks that really matter. So we could do a whole episode, right, where we mm-hmm. talk about why a lot of this stuff probably doesn't apply. Yeah. But, uh, but we'll do that in the future. But anyway, thank you guys very much for joining. Once again, we would love comments. We would love um, ratings on your podcast app. And we'd also love it, of course, if you shared this with your friends. So thank you very much. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.